welcome to How I Got Here, the inside stories of startups and innovation in travel and transportation with your hosts, FocusWire's Kevin May and Mozio's David Litwack. editorial note before we get started on this episode of how I got here inevitably there were some problems with my audio on this one so something that we were unable to rectify when we got into post-production so bear with us on that you might just need to turn up your volume a little bit during some of my questions with our guest Bobby Healy oh by the way it is Bobby Healy so uh, beware for some uh, swear words or curse words as they say in the US otherwise enjoy the show Hello, everyone. Welcome to How I Got Here, Mozio and Focus Wire's weekly podcast about the innovators in travel and transportation. Today, we're joined by Bobby Healy. Uh, Bobby Healy joined the recently founded Car Trawler in 2005 as CTO. And for those of you who don't know, Car Trawler connects business and leisure customers and online travel retailers with 2,500 leading and independent car rental agents, coach transfers, rail networks, and chauffeur drive services. Uh, prior to joining Car Trawler, Bobby founded Eland Technologies, which he actually sold to CETA, uh, where he remained as CTO until 2005. And after Car Trawler, uh, Bobby has founded Amana, a drone delivery service. So thank you for joining us, Bobby. Uh, delighted to be here, David. Thank you. So we like to start all these interviews off the same exact way, which is to ask the same question of how you got here. Oh, uh, so I, I stumbled um, many times to arrive where I am. Uh, so first of all, I'm a programmer. I still write in code, uh, love it. And so obviously I'm a techie. So I've always, um, I started my journey writing code for Nintendo, writing video games. And writing video games is, is great fun. It's, it's, it's pushing the limits of hardware and software together. And, you know, the actual game I could care less about, but the, the technical journey and the learning um, and the accomplishment to build a game is really something. And I started that when I was 15 years old. Oh, by the way, I should say I'm uneducated, an uneducated Irish man, best type. Uh, and anyway, wrote code, started a little video games company myself um, called Doodlebug Designs, wrote a bunch of games, really very successful games that made no money whatsoever. So success being Billboard top three in the US for you know a couple of, couple of big games, made no money. And I also like to make money. So um, I actually went to work for Amadeus after that. Uh, when I was 20 years old in the south of France. And that was when Amadeus were but, but a puppy. Uh, there was, I think, 70 people in Sophie Antipolis when I went there. And uh, it was great, you know, consultants gig, writing code. Amadeus and joined the life in the south of France, the Provencal lifestyle. Got used to that, but then got, got quite, um, I would say, bored with the pace. You know, as great a company as Amadeus are, uh, amazing what they've accomplished. Too slow for uh, a young um, entrepreneurial type like me. I always wanted to do something better. I always wanted to build my own thing. So I founded a company in Mexico City, of all places, called um, VTI, which is a travel agency desktop solution. So, so it's basically a GDS replacement desktop um, for Latin America. That went really well. Uh, forward wine, 12 years. I sold that business to CETA. 
Um, I had moved it back to Ireland at that stage, sold the business to see that it was 150 people at the time, but doing, doing quite well. Post 9-11 even, it was still going well. Told to Sida, spent two years with Sida as chief evangelist, which is where I learned how to bullshit the most. Um, and, and I did really enjoy it, even though Sida is perceived as a, you know, not the most innovative of businesses. I was, you know, sold into and became the software part, so the innovation part. So I enjoyed that and it was it was good, good lesson in life. Um, and then uh, Car Trawler had been founded and I was looking for a new gig and car trawler was well, really was just a website renting cars. It, it had its own physical cars with wheels, steering wheel, all those things. And it wasn't really much, but the founders had gotten a contract with a company called Holiday Autos, which, you know, gave them access to car rental content around Europe. They didn't know what to do with it. They didn't have any tech to, to monetize that. They didn't have a website even really. And they were looking for a tech guy. You know the way I was looking for a tech guy to write an app for them? Well, they, they, that's what they thought I was. And so I went in there and with a very simple strategy was, look, take this great content, which is car hire, which is turns out a very wide margin product, which I couldn't believe actually the unit economics of car hire. And take my, at the time I had 20 of the world's largest airlines as my customers for Eland. Um, so you take those customer relationships and a great product that I know that they all want, build a middleware for it and, and, and a really nice thought leadership platform to get to the market, to, to influence and to, to create this whole concept of ancillary revenue, non-air ancillary revenue, which the, the layman sounds really boring, but it translates to very important revenue for airlines at the time. Group car trawler, that's a long story, go on forever about that, but car trawler was very simply very successful because of the timing that we entered the market um it was the perfect timing really nice simple strategy executed very well with a strong team and that took us 14 years and we went through a number of private equity investment leverage buyouts and nice things like that and then i stepped about three years ago i had the idea for my current business which is mana um a drone delivery business flying hamburgers at 80 kilometers per hour through the air delivered by autonomous drones and here we are that too long that waffle too much sorry no no that was that was un- unusually succinct of you bobby hi Kevin. <laughs> thank you very much for uh, for joining <laughs> us on the show i mean there's lots of things to start off with there but uh, let's go right back and i was struck by something that you said about you know, you, you ended up in the south of France with Amadeus, but it was too slow for you. Can you, can you identify what was something that they could have done to speed things up that would have kept you there for a little bit longer? Nothing. Uh, a big company cannot provide the direct connection between a person and the results that a small company can provide. And Amadeus are a great company. Even then, they were a great company. Uh, and they treat their people so well, and they've managed to get to, I don't know, 2,000 engineers or something, and it's still a really good culture of getting things done uh, and innovating. Just, you know, I'm not different, by the way. I'm just a small company guy. I'll always be a small company guy. I want to write the code. I want to sell that code to the customers. I want to have the strategy. I want to own it all. And no company uh, of scale could, could do that. And, and what I, first thing I did in Amadeus was, 
they had a product called ProDOS. This was back in the OS 2 PM days, and they had a DOS version of that, you know, text screen based. And I wrote this really cool window emulator. It made the, you know, when you logged in, it made the screen bounce, you know, and flip over, which is very difficult to do on a PC with shitty hardware. And not something, though, that, uh, you know, the consultants from Arthur Anderson would understand. And I got a rap on the knuckles for that. And uh, the rest is history. So what, what would that have, uh, bouncing screen, who would have been the uh, the users for that then? Would that have been agents or what? Oh, uh, yeah. So, so Was that just you just pissing about? No, it's like, well, I mean, so, sometimes, sometimes the consumer doesn't know what the consumer wants, right? And in this case, <laughs> the logon screen is the most boring thing you could fucking imagine, right? It's on every screen, on every application you use. You tell me how many logon screens bounce. None. Amadeus right. would have been the first in the world for bouncing login screen. And they, it's their loss. It's their loss. Yeah, indeed. What could have been, I suppose, is... Oh, uh, what can I say? It's The company is <laughs> shit because of it. Indeed, but you, you referenced your age at the time, Bobby. You said you were in your early 20s, I think. I was 19. 19, 19. Yeah. If you'd been... Well, you must be... I'm 20. Did I guess it? Yeah. Uh, 51, 51 and a half. Okay, so you're now 51. And a half. Now. If, you, if, you, if you rolled up at Amadeus now as a 51-year-old, do you think you would be slightly more accepting of your perceived notion of their speed now? Was no. it a youthful vigor thing that you just didn't like, or was it, you just, as you said just now, Bobby, your kind of entrepreneurial spirit? Do you know, even, even then I was diplomatic about it. You know, I didn't throw my toys out of the pram, and I did what I was told, and, you know, I always... I would always try to push to make things better. And, and I solved some nice problems for them, cool stuff that actually they did want. Uh, but would, it, would I, no, I mean, even, even now, 51-year-old Bobby still looks now at an aircraft and I look at, I write my own code to analyze, you know, accelerometer data. And I try to say, well, why don't we go to, you know, these props instead of those props. And yep. no, like in my team, there's 26, 27 people in MANA now. I, I'm the one pushing on on innovating and like and it's full of young people it's all bloody young people no it's 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 a it's a personality defect i think okay david so you know bobby i want to uh, rewind a little bit to you know is when you founded car trawler um you said something that there that i kind of uh, had to chuckle at was that you took these 20 airline relationships and just sold something to them i feel like like it's probably it's never that easy right like with airlines and and, and getting them to do much of anything so uh yeah. obviously you guys succeeded i think if i remember correctly about 100 airline relationships so clearly you persevered and made it made it happen but i'm kind of curious you know if you could tell us a little bit more about how you actually managed i think convince some of the most risk averse partners out there and probably the longest enterprise sales uh, you know, like cycle to, to work with you. Yeah. Re- uh, relationship, David. Uh, so for, first of all, we knew what we were doing in terms of technology. So we knew their systems better than they knew their systems. Cause don't forget our, our previous life, me and my tech team were building these very e-commerce websites and middlewares for airlines. So, so we knew their systems better than they did. And they understood that we knew that because we were good at, at, I, was, I would say communicating that to them. Um, so, so they felt safe on at least that we knew we were doing technically and we weren't going to be underestimating that we knew what a PNR was and like basic stuff like that. So that's part one. And then part two, 
was I always come back to the route for market for car trawler and for and it suits a lot of businesses, not all, but the perfect route to market for business like car trawler was taught leadership. So what that means is, and you've seen it, and both of you have seen it, me on a stage talking about stuff, right? I'm an expert in I did a TED talk on autonomous cars. I know nothing about autonomous cars. And um, it's just being entertaining, being the technology evangelist. Look at me. I know what I'm talking about. I know what you should be doing next. And giving them ideas and, and reasons to want to talk to you. And that works really well. And then, the, so you have an open door to go in and talk to them about, okay, well, let's, we know how to solve this problem. And here's what us solving this problem for you translates to. And so I, I never found that difficult. And from the day I started, which was August the 12th, 2005, we had our first airline signed in less than a year, and it was La Polish Airlines. And we were building the platform as we were selling the platform. And that's the nice thing about being a tech, like programmer founder, is that you can be selling while you're writing the code. And so long as you're able to deliver and you're in control of ultimately the, the what I say, the level of ambition of version one and that the customer is in sync with that and understands that they're to be the user, I think that's the way to build the product because you're actually building it with the customer and you're not just getting the perfect product out of it as a result, but so is the customer getting exactly what they want. And then from our previous business, we had understood that in order to satisfy the moods and whims of different enterprise customers that all have their own view about what's the right way to do things and, you know, want an input into a product. And we, we, we anticipated that ahead of time. And in every conversation we had with them and in everything we built, we either built flexibility into the product to, you know, satisfy them all, or we control the conversation preemptively so that we were able to have one set of code for all customers. And actually one of the things that no one ever believes and it's absolutely true, is that code that we wrote 13, 14 years ago is still at the core of the car trawler middleware. We got it right the first time. We never had to rebuild it. Well, we have something else in common then, uh, Bobby, other than just both running ground uh, platforms. I also, our first deal was also with a lot of Polish airlines and we closed it in an elevator. And unfortunately, the head of Ansley Revenue was drunk and didn't remember it the next morning. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I was at a conference and we were thrilled uh, to have lot Polish and then uh, yeah, never remember. Yeah, it's a national carrier. They yeah, were a great well. <laughs> partner. Great, they were a great partner. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, they're a bit like the Irish, I suppose. Yeah, well, yeah, there's a healthy amount of alcohol. Say no more on that, yeah. just for all those <laughs> Polish people in the audience. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I mean, it, it's it's interesting what you said about controlling the conversation or building flexible into the product, because I do think that I see all these big enterprise guys. I once you know, met uh, the guys that do a lot of public transit ticketing, and they had 17 different systems for 17 different uh, you know, public transit agencies, and they yeah. hadn't thought yeah. about any sort of central redundancy so i mean it's impressive that you have literally all of your original code at, at, at the core mm. still going it's a very simple system though david i mean at the, at the core of it, it it's all java which makes it nice to keep things clean um but, but it was it was very simple design principles and 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 i always this was my line the disk light should never blink that was the rule the disk light shouldn't blink when we're running right and what that means is you need to have a direct connection between your between what the what the output is of in our case a messaging system to the hardware 
So if the disk light's blinking, it means that you're relying on disk, right? And if you're relying on disk, you've not designed the system properly if you're going to be a messaging middleware. So that, like those very, very simple technical principles guided the way we designed the code. And like it's not, it's not rocket science. It's a, at the heart of the cartola system. It's very pure and simple, uh, concise code base. And then you can layer stuff on top of that functionality. So we would have a pricing system, a, a sort, biasing system, you know, all these different systems and connectors to user interfaces. But at, at the core of it, it, it was simplicity uh, personified. And, and uh, yeah, I'm proud of that, but that's, you know, good programmer should be. Uh, but it's what's nice about me or the advantage I have is that I'm also able to sell that to, you know, to the market, to the customers and, and the technical side of airlines and our bigger partners, that resonates with them. Yeah, no, certainly. So, you know, what's also interesting, you're talking about, you know, pitching these airlines and, and what resonates with them. I feel like for the last, you know, nine years that Mozio has been in existence, this idea of like every airline should be the Amazon of travel, you know, like yeah, yeah, yeah. It is, yeah. is kind of like a, a, you know, almost become a, a joke these days. And like, you know, I think some, you know, particularly like AirAsia and Ryan or guys like that do a better job than others. Um, but, you know, I feel like you wrote a, you mentioned it earlier, a, a wave of interest in ancillary revenue yeah, from bag yeah. fees to, to car rentals and everything. And, you know, tell us about that change in mindset on the, the airlines and how you were able to take advantage of it. That, that's well noted, David. Um, you know, when we started, it, airlines were starting, EasyJet were actually, I think, the pioneer, maybe Southwest, but EasyJet certainly had built this concept of non-air ancillary and it was it was clear, very clear. It hadn't arrived at the trade circuit yet, but it was very clear that airlines were starting to think about how else can we make money? Like we have 20 million passengers a year, 30% of them are on our website with a credit card making a $300 purchase, and all they're selling them is an unprofitable seat. So that idea of selling more stuff uh, to the same customer base was pretty obvious, right? But then you say, okay, well, who does that really well? Well, it's obviously Amazon, right, with the recommendation engine. So you steal that halo and you bring it over and put it in your own head and you say, we can make you be the Amazon. And that, that, was, that allowed us to really simplify the message to what we are to people. And, that, and that's actually just good marketing, I think, or good positioning. Like I was on a pitch thing, a plug and play pitch just earlier on today. There's 25 companies on there and I listened to all of them, four minute pitches. And, and I don't know what 90% of them do still. And we were able to say, we'll turn your website into the Amazon of travel by just one line of script, add every product you want, bang. You know, keep it simple and, and strong. So yeah, we, we, we certainly robbed that halo and then Ryanair and lots of others did the same thing. But the truth is, and you and me both know this, there's still airlines do a piss poor job of monetizing their customer base. And there's still a long way to go. And to be honest with you, and Kevin, you like this one. If they don't do it, Google will. We won't talk about no, that. We're inevitably going to come into your, your <laughs> lifelong, career-long uh, <laughs> affinity for, uh, for Google, the search engine. So um, it's, it's, it's interesting because, I mean, for, for many people, whether they're journalists or industry people that attend conferences, you are synonymous with, car trawler and we're always the um i guess the front man for it is that how did that come about because you know you are a, you're a founder a, 
someone who came in in year one and you were the CTO, but you weren't the CEO. I mean, what, how did you find yourself in that role where you were always the person on stage cracking jokes, making people laugh, but being very smart at the same time about it? Um, so that's, that's branding as well. I mean, so the company was really run by myself and Mike McGurty, who was, Mike was the CEO. Mike is, uh, you know, very stable, genius. Uh, he's, he's, uh, he's an accountant. He's prudent. He knows about structure. Uh, you know, and he, he's, he's a really, really smart guy and, and a good friend of mine as well. Um, uh, you know, M- Mike and me, kind of ran the business together. But we, we also knew that, look, if you want to sell a tech product, be tech cool, right? And Mike's not going to stand up and be tech cool. He doesn't know a computer if hit him in the head. So I'm good at selling tech. I'm good at the, all of that, right? Um, and that's, that's part of it. It's, it's about branding image. And your company is a personality. And it's either going to be some stupid, shitty logo that means nothing to anyone or, or a person. And that person you know, can, and in my case, you know, was me, but I also led the company from a strategy point of view. So it was my, uh, work on this is what we're doing next. This is not, not just technically how we're going to build it, but this is not just what the customer is going to want, but this is how we're going to tell the customer that that's what they're going to want. And so I think that's important for a business to lead with, uh, like a tech business, to, to lead with a tech person that's evangelizing as well as making a lot of decisions because it's real. But if I look at bigger companies to do that, they, they send out a more polished version, right? With won't curse as much, uh, but also won't be really connected with the strategy or the product of the company. It'll be just someone that's really good at talking, right? Like the people at Google wheel out, let's call it a spade a spade. Um, and small companies need to do better than that. So, like, David, you're the guy in Mosio, right? Uh, and, and, and there's lots of others that I, I think it's an important part of, of the message and the kind of personality of the company to do that. So I didn't run the company. I ran it with Mike. I find it very difficult to manage a large company. I don't have a structured mind. And, and I'm CEO of Mana now. God help Mana if I have to scale it. <laughs> this isn't going out public anywhere, is it? I have investors. <laughs> no, your your secret is safe with us and uh, right. Okay. Focus, focus wire, of course. Right. Okay. Um, I, I I'm interested in also from uh, those early years as a startup and into the kind of the 2010s as well. I mean, you're, you're an Irish company. Your card trawler was an Irish company. Is an Irish company, and we, we've had a probably a, a disproportionate sadly number of founders that we've spoken to on this that are from the valley and from the us i mean how did you find trying to break into the travel tech world being an irish startup um well i mean i would say oh, no, the, the valley te- the, the, techn- the technology always has to speak for itself of course and those yeah kind of things, but, but there are so many other things that often count for you or count against you based on your geography perhaps no absolutely uh in this, in the, in the case of Car Trawler, it was never an advantage because we were always profitable, so we never needed to raise money, and we bootstrapped it, uh, and, and we were very quickly generating cash, so we never needed to play that valley thing. And another problem with the valley is just the cost. Like, the, like you know, to run an operation in the valley is probably five times the cost to run the operation in Dublin, and seven times the cost to run it in Wales, and so on. The talent is talent pool is concentrated and good in the valley, but tenure is terrible. 
And the average tenure until I until I left anyway or went non-exec guardroller was seven years of our tech people. Like we didn't lose tech people. And and like if you're a programmer, you know the story. You cannot lose programmers that wrote code because you may as well just throw out the code. No programmer worth their salt is going to come in and maintain someone else's code. They're always going to want to be rewriting and re-architecting it. And in the valley, you have churn. Like you're doing well to keep someone for 18 months. In Dublin, you're keeping someone, if you, as long as you treat them well and you give them interesting work, you're keeping them as long as you want. Um, that makes software more resilient and it makes your product more flexible, believe it or not. It's a funny dynamic. No, it's, so it's interesting it's, on that. It's, sorry, just, just a second to follow up on that one, David. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting how you've kind of framed that because, you know, you aren't the only, or Cartrawler wasn't the only up-and-coming tech company in Ireland anyway. I mean, Google moved there, the Facebook had stuff there. There you have yeah. the Datalex and the travel tech companies like the Datalex and the box servers and all those kind of folks. So to retain, to retain the programmers and the other staff that you had, I mean, what were you doing to as a company culture perspective to kind of keep them there apart from maybe paying them obscene amounts of money? No, we, ne we, we didn't, you know, I mean, uh, like we, we didn't really have stock options to play with. We didn't really have a ton of cash. Like we wouldn't overpay and you just keep them, keep them happy. Like, I mean, programmers always want to work on interesting things. So certainly yeah. programmers have, you could, you could almost calculate by age, right? You can say, right, 20 year olds want to play with the latest, uh, SEKs and the latest version of blah blah blah, and and forty year old onwards, they're quite happy so long as they get to make architecture decisions and to write the odd bit of code and mentor people. And the the ones in the middle could go either way, right? And it's just like we never. What, how many? Our top size, I think, was about a hundred people in engineering and car trawler. I knew all their names. Most of the time, I knew what they were working on. And a lot of the times, I was fighting with them over how to build it or what to build with and all that stuff. It's about, you know, how impressive is it for a new programmer to come in to a, a company and have the founder or, or at least someone like me going up to their desk, you know, pushing them aside and saying, show me what you're doing and let's talk about this and looking at the code and asking questions and getting involved. So that's about, I think that's leadership. I think I do that well with tech teams and that's how you keep people, keep them engaged, keep them really feeling that they are responsible for the outcome and uh like as i said i'm a programmer not just not my first rodeo leading programming teams that works um but that's really difficult to do at scale and once you get to a certain size that's more and more difficult to do so you you mentioned that uh, you know the the thing about churn being less in Ireland and something Mozio also realized from a an early age. We've been nine years distributed, and it's now the trendy thing to do uh, post coronavirus. But um, you know, you the car trawler name means something in travel, but I, I'd say it means just as much in the Irish tech industry. And I remember. You know, uh, a couple of times I, I think I came to visit you or Datalex or, or something in, in, in Ireland and mentioned who I was going towards and the cab driver knew who you guys were. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and, you know, maybe, you know, the funny thing is Mozio actually has a Irish entity technically because you guys have done a really good job trying to recruit, you know, foreign entities to open up offices there. And, yeah. you know, we're one of them on paper at least. Uh, you know, how do you look at what the Irish tech scene has evolved like in the last, you know, 10 years? Um, it's, it, to be honest with you, it hasn't evolved at all. It's kind of 
culturally it's the same. Um, it's quite a sober, uh, I, I realized the pun involved there, but it's actually quite a sober tech industry. We, we're not mad for flash Harry, or we don't talk in Silicon Valley unicorn terms at all. It's, it's really quite a, uh, I won't say conservative, but it, it, yeah, but it's just basically, you know, like just get it done, make some cash, maybe try and sell your business work hard and there's, there's not a lot of bullshit, right? Uh, which, which I actually like. I'm probably the biggest bullshitter, to be honest with you. Uh, and Cartrawler is, through its scale, uh, the biggest, you know, the biggest success, tech success, probably, uh, in Ireland and in the travel space and possibly, um, you know, at all. So we're obviously well known and we make bit of noise and the reason we make a bit of noise is for hiring right we want to get all the best people always to make noise but there's not like if I look at a San Francisco company like you guys coming over I, I would say to any company listening to this you should be in Ireland You'd be better off in Ireland um, tax advantages are unbelievable if you're a foreign company our government do a really good like I would say us and the Israelis you know are the leaders in the world of getting and attracting talent and and indigenous and companies to come in we're not great at fostering indigenous companies we're getting a lot better um but it is a really really nice environment with a ton of talent a great place to live and shitty weather which is perfect for productivity <laughs> So uh, that's I, I had I wanted to actually segue the conversation to something, and, and I'm, this could end up being a very short answer to the question, if, depending on if you're allowed to talk about it or not. But to uh, you know, a, a something that happened with another Irish company that you used to work with, Ryanair, and you guys walked away from at least part of that deal. I remember. And, um, you know, Ryan is notoriously litigious and I forget if they sued you or sued someone else. I think they've sued everyone at this point. From what I understand, I think, but, uh, I think we're actually the only company that they didn't sue because I know where Michael O'Leary lives. Really? There you go. Well, so, <laughs> you know, yeah. I, and I remember gets done dark alleys in Ireland. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, what I found interesting about that is, is you guys clearly decided to, to walk away from a, you know, what is, uh, is you know, theoretically yeah. the biggest deal in in the industry right and yeah. I, I i you know i've had my own dealings with ryan there where they tried to like get me to pay them for my product or something ridiculously topsy-turvy <laughs> uh with us ended up with us walking away so i can i can guess half your answer but i'm I, maybe you could elaborate a little bit more on what goes into a decision like that when should a startup literally go this isn't worth it for us you know we have no fish to fry yeah yeah, I mean, like I, I advise a bunch of startups and, and I always tell them, they all get excited about signing Ryanair, about signing Ryanair. I say, if you do that, you're dead, right? Their scale and their complexity and all of that volume does you no good because, you know, rightly so, Michael O'Leary leaves nothing on the table, no breadcrumbs. He has a hoover every time you leave your office to hoover up any coins that fell out of your pocket. Um, but that's not to say they're not a great customer because they push your boundaries in terms of functionality, data set, and all that stuff. So, you know, I would say we got as much out of the Ryanair deal as Ryanair did because we got to evolve our product with the most incredible data set and, and functionality that we got to build and test on the fly with the biggest airline in Europe. And, and hats off, like for me, if you're at a sufficient scale where you can take on a loss-making deal and get something out of it in terms of product development, then that's worth doing. And that would have been our view of it. And like there have been 
one of, if not our best ever customer. And uh, in terms of how we evolved the product, it's they were turbocharged uh, customer for us. So, you know, not for small companies, for big companies to want to really stretch, take a stretch, they're, they're worth dealing with, I, I always felt. And they're also entertaining. I mean, you know, it's a great client to have if you don't mind, you know, getting roared at, screamed at and all that stuff. Uh, but they were great, you know, like their tech team were the fastest airline tech team we've ever worked with. Um, they were the most receptive to trying out things. And, and like if we wanted to have a daily or a weekly iterative cycle on their native mobile app, they were up for that. You know, if they thought it squeezed an extra 10 basis points, you know, out of something, they, they were up for it. So that's very valuable. Um, but then at some point when you get to where we were, at a certain scale where you can afford to fire a customer, as they say, um, sometimes uh, the marriage isn't beneficial for both parties. And if that's the case, I'm not saying that's the case with Ryanair, but if that's the case, you should always look at the impact on all levels of any particular customer. And unless, unless it works on multiple levels, um sometimes it's better either not to take that customer on or or you might need to walk away from it so at what point you're know, taking it from the other direction right like you said like they're one extreme uh in terms of hoovering up every dollar and you know there's other people like like walmart has a notorious you know uh you know kind of uh uh bidding uh you know deal where they they pressure you down and obviously amazon uh, jeff bezos has the saying above us well your margin is my opportunity or something yeah um, yeah but like you know at what point does it become penny wise pound foolish because i've sometimes seen you know airlines or otas or other people go well we can squeeze this little bit out and then they they scare all potential partners away who can't make any money they build it and then like i've seen certain airlines in our, or certain otas on their second or third iteration of like a, mo- a transfers project uh, uh, like in mozio and it's kind of you know you've probably wasted a lot of money here trying to squeeze that extra point one, you know that extra 10 basis points out of it you know yeah I, yeah i don't know like have you thought about that like like yeah yeah so so like we don't have any customers um, that that I would say abuse us, you know. But I would say, and like that, we have suppliers on the other side. Don't forget, we have just like you, we have a ton of suppliers on the other side, and we squeeze them. And um, but we don't try to make it a lose-win situation. And I think in, in the end, you have to be a good member of the community. Everyone has to, you know, have a reasonable margin. And I, I don't agree with squeezing anything to the nth, particularly bringing in a small startup and squeezing them to the end. Um, I don't agree with that, but, but you, could, you could say equally culpable would be the boards and investors and some of these small companies that are just you know, looking at the, the sexiest big opportunity rather than thinking about it um, you know, and, and the, all, all the facets of it. Uh, you know, so, yeah, look, it just, it just depends, but I, I certainly wouldn't take the zero margin approach i would like to think that you know when i do retire that everyone will come to my retirement party and not hate my guts and there are certain individuals uh, they'll be pretty fucking lonely at their retirement parties and i don't want to be one of them <laughs> okay and what i found quite interesting having you know i pretty much started writing about travel tech at the same time as Carl Trawler was born. So, you know, my, my journey in learning about the industry and the people in it, it's kind of mirrors. It's the Carl Trawlers. And I, 
maybe you'll come you'll you'll correct me on when the date was or the period was but it was certainly probably going back four or five years where you whether it was you personally or whether the company started talking very vociferously about google we talked to you know we referenced this a little while ago now some would say that perhaps given you know google is always an exit for somebody it may well have been an exit for you what what was the thinking were you behind being so vocal about your anger about google was it just frankly because you were pissed off with them or was it that you just there yeah. was something else in it because there was a it's a fair thing to say bobby that it did suddenly kind of switch on that you suddenly became yeah. very vocal about google i mean up up until november of last year your interview with me a couple of years ago at the focus right europe conference where you went on a right old rant about google was our most popular video to date unfortunately nice was a rather uh, interesting guy called chamath who i interviewed last november at the focus right conference who kind of um, blew you out of the water on that one but until really? that I moment you were <laughs> yeah he was pretty good but uh, um I, you know, back to that point though. I mean, there was yeah. a turning point where you suddenly became Mr. Yeah. I'm going to well, talk about Google whenever I get the opportunity. Yeah, correct. So nobody was willing to speak clearly about what Google's game was in the travel industry. Uh, none of the platforms, um, like, as in the conference platforms, everybody was giving Google a seat on the stage because, and rightly so, that sells tickets, right? You get the Google travel guys up. Everyone wants to go see that. And it's always the most packed part of the event. So, But no one's challenging them. No one is questioning, what are you, Mr. Tech Giant, with your you know, 80 to $120 billion of EBITDA doing, looking at the travel industry? What's your plan here? And I, I found it quite interesting, not threatening at all, but I found it quite interesting, their relationship with Expedia and Priceline. And just from a strategy point of view, I was interested in tracking that. But I was blown away by how, in fact, by the, the absolute vacuum of tough questions that were being asked. And then I find out that Google are screening questions and they're refusing to be interviewed in a two-way thing and they're refusing to debate and they're refusing to get... I just think that's super unfair. And I think they bullied the whole industry into a one-way message. And in terms of strategy, you know, it's pretty clear to me what it is. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, there's nobody... It, this is so obvious. And then on the other side in search, they have a monopoly. The regulators doing sweet FA about it. Meanwhile, they're po in my view, they're poised to, to do some major damage to the potential for innovators to innovate. And what I mean by that is that, you know, I, I've started a business, as you know, and I invest in other businesses and I advise venture capitalists and private equity on their potential investments on their existing portfolios. And at the same time as all these things were happening, I'm noticing that investors are starting to say, well, hang on a second, we'll, why won't Google do that? That's the question I ask. So if you see a bit of innovation, they straight away go to, oh, well, why wouldn't Google do that? In other words, they think that if Google are interested in that space, it's not an investable space. And for me, that is an abuse of, an, of a monopoly position to extend market dominance into adjacent segments, which in Europe is against the law. And that is what they got fined for. But yet no one in the travel industry is challenging them. And I asked so many times to debate them on the stage or, or to, you know, contribute to the questions, whatever, you know, 
no way can you do that because they're so influential in the travel industry. Any B2C business is afraid of them. I know B2C businesses, as you, Kevin, that have been knocked out of business through SEO punishments um, that, are, that are really existential. And you have this giant on one side that wants to enter the travel industry as a vertical, and on the other side, they control the fate of anyone that's a B2C business. And luckily for Cartroller, we're not really a B2C business, so uh, I had nothing to lose. And then the other part is uh, most of the airline executives that you know I would know that I work with because they're customers or whatever reason, they want to talk about this behind closed doors, but they want to talk about it. And so therefore, selfishly speaking, I'm very happy to add my voice to that, to talk to them about it, to help them understand it and to maybe plot where the, where the thing could end up. And that actually serves my needs as well because it brings me closer to the airlines. So it's taught leadership. Um, but yeah, I still feel very strong about it. And I, I think that they need a much bigger challenge from the industry. Um, finally, you know, Barry Diller finally spoke up about it and said that they should be broken up. But, but before that, Derek Hoshishawi said nothing. He congratulated them on their continued success the whole time. Mark Okerstrom behind the same. Never, never an industry challenge. And Priceline are happy to buy the customers because they're the, in the dominant position. So Priceline are the only ones that continue to, to continue to win by Google's monopoly. Everybody else loses. Yeah. So actually elaborating on that a little bit, uh, Drew Patterson of Jetsetter, uh, in Room 77, uh, wrote an article about a month and a half, two months ago, about how traditionally the OTAs benefit from recessions because little small little hotels finally decide, well, I'm running out of money, better get as much traffic as possible and yeah. go sign up. Um, and how actually this time around, it's looking like Google's going to be willing to benefit over the OTAs. And uh, I don't want to butcher his, his op-ed, but I, I, the theory, I think, if I'm remembering it correctly, was that, um, you know, the... Uh, it's more you know efficient just to directly link, and also um, many of these OTAs have stopped advertising. Uh, you know, needless on on Google, and Google doesn't have to pay for those those eyeballs. Um, yeah. You know, I'm curious, how do you see this playing out? Like, you know, over you know partly post COVID, but it's also regardless of COVID over the next five to ten years around. You know, th these you know, it's vertical search versus horizontal search, right? Vertical search meaning Priceline booking and yeah. versus horizontal and Google. And you know, do you have uh, any hope that the vertical guys will win out, um, or do you do you like without legislation? Actually, I think they I think they can thrive, but I think it's a it's a it's consolidation. So there's no opportunity for any small entrant, zero opportunity. And the, the medium guys ultimately will coalesce into bigger medium guys and ultimately either get uh, acquired by, by Priceline or Expedia or whatever. But there's, it, there's a world where there's direct-to-hotel powered by Google, which will be 60%, 70% of the world. And then there's a rest which will be aggregated by the Priceline and Expedia. And the reason that will exist is because they do fulfillment. They do customer service, which is needed. And I think because of the fragmentation in the hotel industry, that's always going to be a need. And, and again, if you ask anyone in private in Google, you know, how they view the travel industry, it's very simply, they don't believe in the value of aggregation. They don't believe unless you add value, physical value somewhere along the chain, you should be directly bypassed by Google. That's their view. So it therefore makes a lot of sense what they're currently doing, particularly in flights, um, and, but as much in, in uh, hotel too. Funnily enough, in car hire, 
they haven't really been that active. They may be, they should be. Uh, if I were a monopoly, I'd go into car hire. Uh, but right now, they, they haven't. Um, and again, there's a happy, bloody conspiracy going on here between Google, Priceline, and Expedia. Everybody else loses. But so long as you know those guys hoover up the world, uh, but at some point, Google are going to change the direction of the gun. And that point becomes when, when the margin has eroded so much or starts to really get affected by, um, so in other words, the paid margin comes down so much and loyalty disappears, which it will, uh, what happens then? Well, as Google expands, once, the, once their market headroom, or sorry, once their market penetration has, is saturated and the margin within that penetration has maximized, the only way you can grow your business, and this is a business that still grows at nearly 20% annually, like it's, it's unbelievable. So where do you go next? Well, you bypass the intermediary and you go straight to the owner of the product and there's a much wider margin down there. And they're already doing that and they'll continue to do it. So for me, that story that I've been talking about for, I don't know, four or five years, it, it hasn't changed. It's still happening. Um, will they get broken up? Not, not quickly enough to save the small guys in the travel industry. I'm, I'm glad that it was four or five years because that's why I had it in my head that that's how long you've been talking about it. So yeah. um, I, f I feared that we would have very little time to kind of move on to uh, this last little phase and we've, we've been very conscious of everyone's time. Um, those that are listening on the audio of the podcast in a couple of weeks from now, behind you there is what looks essentially from the picture like a Starship Enterprise, but it's actually a drone from your new company, which is Mana. Can you just give us a, a sense kind yeah. of what's the thinking behind leaving what you had to go into actually being the CEO of yeah. a new company of a very fairly nascent type of technology yeah. and briefly if you can just talk to us about the stuff that you've been doing yeah. around the covid because that was particularly interesting and brilliant yes so, so online food is 350 billion dollar industry uh uber eats delivery grubhub you name it uh, it loses money on most transactions because the cost of bringing that product from the place to the customer is about $6.50. So it's a shitty low margin industry that's growing like crazy and very, very large. Um, so so I, I, at some point I came up with the idea, well, you can use drones to carry products within two or three miles of a, of a store or a restaurant and you can do very cheaply. So I put a team together. Um, I invested in myself. I built a drone, concept drone. That worked. Then I expanded it. I raised, I raised $7 million now for the business. We have now an aviation-grade, really industrial drone that will carry two to four kilos at about 80 kilometers per hour that, you know, across a 50-square-kilometer catchment area. Maximum delivery time at three minutes. And at a cost of $1, we can carry everything from everywhere to everyone at speed in a scalable way. So like <laughs> this thing is by far bigger than car trawl or anything I could imagine. Just the virgin space of last mile delivery is so big and regulations are starting to open up to allow us to do this. And we're running now in Ireland, small town Ireland, thousand people. And we're delivering, we're obviously delivering convenience store and all these other things. We're also delivering prescription medicines. So you can get a video consultation with your doctor your doctor then can, based on that issue, a, a prescription electronically to the local pharmacy. The pharmacy gets that, and we fly it from the pharmacy directly to the customer, to the patient's house. And it, it arrives, again, within three minutes of being dispensed. Uh, 
it's a circus. It looks like a circus. It's entertaining, but it's as practical as it is entertaining. And it is, without a doubt, as crazy as it sounds, there's going to be no road-based delivery in suburban and rural areas after five years. It's just so much better. It's perhaps ironic that you've gone from ground transportation into air transportation, finally, after all these different iterations we might, of your career. We might plug it into car trawler and carry people around. <laughs> What's this space, eh? Okay, um, we're right up against time now. So, as always, it's a pleasure for me to talk to you, Bobby, and from David and I. Thank you very much for appearing on How I Got Here and being so insightful and entertaining as always. Thank you. You're very welcome. Nice to see you. Okay, thanks. Uh, uh, thank you, Bobby. And uh, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. This was How I Got Here. This is Mosey on FocusWise weekly podcast where we talk to the innovators and entrepreneurs in travel and transportation. If you've come to this randomly, you can subscribe to How I Got Here on Spotify, Google Podcasts, iTunes, all the usual places. Leave us a review. Leave us some feedback. We'd love to hear what you think. But that's all from us for now. We'll see you next time. Thanks ever so much. Thanks for listening to the How I Got Here podcast. We'll be back next week with more inside stories behind startups and innovation in travel and transportation. Check mozio.com slash move for a complete write-up of the highlights of every podcast with translations into five languages. And get your daily dose of news on the digital travel economy by subscribing to the newsletter at focuswire.com. See you next week.